You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. We have with us here Genevieve Bell. And Genevieve is the, well, she's the Florence Violet McKenzie Chair at the, at the Australian National University. Um, she is the head of the School of Cybernetics, which she started there. Um, and um, cybernetics. You know, I, I heard this, I said, is cybernetics even a thing? Yes, it is. Um, Genevieve has, has a kind of fascinating um, background in that she's trained originally as an anthropologist um, and started working with Intel in the, what, 1999, was it 2000? 1998. Yeah, 1998. And um, really started working with Intel in order to start thinking about what a what the interactions were with humans for the technologies that Intel was creating. Um, she then made a rapid ascent to become a senior research fellow and vice president at Intel, um, a post that she still holds, as well as being a professor at ANU. And she, um, for, for, for her work, has become a, a member of the Order of Australia, amongst many other things. Um, she is sort of visionary in terms of thinking about the future but a very practical one. <laughs> Excellent. She also is a great collector of really interesting people. And I think if I was going to describe the School of Cybernetics as anything, it's a collection of very interesting people, amongst whom is Andrew Mares. Now, Andrew comes, um, I, I, don't, I don't feel tall out of place as an English professor with Genevieve because Andrew's background is a press photographer. In fact, he's not just a press photographer. He was one of Australia's leading press photographers for about 25 years. And there are whole banks of images that if you show them to any Australian, they'll say, oh, I know that image. And Andrew took it. Um, he was a chief photographer with the Sydney Morning Herald for uh, quite a few years. So the image that a lot of Australians saw when they woke up to their coffee and croissants in the morning was one of Andrew's. So uh, he, he, had, he brings a very profound sort of visual sense to things. What we want to do this evening is, 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 is in some ways talk about the visual and how we see things and how we see technology and about the problems and the challenges of seeing technology. And in order to start this off, I want to just give you a sense of how it was that we ended up connecting. Um, it happened here. This is the um, transatlantic cable station in Valencia Island, um, which is currently in the process of becoming a UNESCO World Heritage Site along with its counterpart in Newfoundland due to the efforts of Leonard Hobbs, formerly of this parish, um, currently with Intel yeah, again. Yeah. And uh, a few years ago, um, I was there giving a talk on transatlantic cables and Genevieve happened to be there as well, giving a talk on the Australian Overland Telegraph. And what I was interested in with transatlantic cables was the way in which what was in 1857 the cutting edge of communications technology, the running of a telegraphic cable across the Atlantic Ocean, um, happened in a place that was really just barely out of the famine. Um, you know, the, the cable station of Valencia Island is directly across the bay from the workhouse in Cartersevine, where there were still people in the workhouse after the famine. So you had this pre-modern level of destitution that sat alongside what was the great you know technological triumph of its time and you get images like this I'm going to return to this one this is the cable coming ashore in Valencia Island 
And what fascinates me, one of the, there's a couple things fascinate us about this picture, but one of the things that fascinates me about this is the way in which we have the juxtaposition of this image of the cable, but with the landscape, with this wild landscape. And you get lots of images like this, this wild, I'm tempted to say desolate landscape, juxtaposed with this intimation of what's happening here is the wiring of the world. The, what was the phrase often used at the time was the annihilation of space and time. So that's what I was interested in. And when I met Genevieve, what she was interested in was partly the product of this map. This is the Australian Overland Telegraph, is, yep. is, it comes out of this. Tell us just as it, it, it sort of the, the Reader's Digest version of the Australian Overland Telegraph. So the Reader's Digest version of it is if you look at all the lines in between the countries, so see all the dotted lines here, flowing all the way through this, and then you get to Australia, bottom corner. In 1870, Australia has an entire network of telegraphs inside the island. But in 1870, if you needed to get information to and from Australia, you were still putting it on a boat. That boat took fastest ship wind behind you, best day, it's 44 days from London to Adelaide in the bottom middle of the country. So think basically 90 days round trip if you want a decision made, 90 days round trip if you need information, if you want stock, if you wanted to trade or if you're a colonial government attempting to enact activity in your empire, it's a little while to close the loop. You have a bunch of incredibly driven uh, superintendents of telegraphy in Australia who are connecting up Australia but who are looking to the rest of the world, seeing submarine cable activity, reading about it, usually belatedly, and wanting to get to participate. In 1869, an enterprising man who is indeed behind the transatlantic telegraph cable makes his way to Perth on the West Australian coast and says, gentlemen, I have a deal for you. If you give me about £100,000, I will drag a cable from Indonesia to Australia and connect you to the rest of the world. The West Australian said, uh, no, it's, it's expensive and we don't know why you'd want to do that. They get to Adelaide, moving sort of east and south, and the superintendent of the telegraphs for the great colony of South Australia said, I will give you $100,000. I will commit to string a telegraphy wire from Adelaide in the base of Australia to a place called Palmerston that we would now know as Darwin at the top of Australia, an area which at this point had been traversed by one white explorer where there are no settlements. I will do that in 22 months. I will have the cable to you in Darwin. And for every month I am late, you may charge me a 3,000 pound fine. So think quarter of a million bucks a month if it doesn't get done. He says, I'll give you all of that on the condition that you don't go on to Melbourne and Sydney and attempt to get a better deal with them. The man in question saw that this was a good deal, took the money and went back in the ship in the other direction. And so now Charles Todd, superintendent of South Australia, finds himself with 22 months and 3,200 kilometers of country that needs to be surveyed. And then, well, you have to put a pole every 80 meters, <laughs> which means you need 36,000 poles. You need 36,000 insulators you need about three and a half thousand kilometers of galvanized wire and a thousand men to dig said holes for said poles in order to string the wire along that area. And oh, by the way, you are now traversing country that is the traditional country of 
probably no less than about 60 Aboriginal nations for whom that country is significant, important and fully occupied. And so we set up what becomes a remarkable clash of cultures, technologies, infrastructures, ways where, I mean, Chris talks about annihilation of time and space, but where you also end up having things that are incommensurate, right? A telegraph line that traverses country that has particular meaning and to make the telegraph work, and this was how Chris and I met, was me going, oh, it must be really nice. You have a boat. All you need to do is drag a cable off the back. That's lovely. How long did that take? Oh, 20, 20 days. That's excellent. Now dig holes for, you know, 3,200 kilometres. And doing all of that took a remarkable amount of effort to make that work. And then every 200 kilometres along that line, you need to build a physical building, fill it with humans in order to generate electricity to keep powering the line. So effectively, you have the original humans in the loop you have an original set of technologists and you have an entire class of human beings who are now having to produce telegraphy in order to make it function. And all of that happens in the space of an 18-month period. And on August 22nd, 1872, they actually meet the deadline, plug the line in, it goes live, and it goes from taking 44 days on the fastest ship with the wind behind you to about seven hours and 36 pairs of hands to get information from London to Adelaide. And in that sort of split second, at least for Australia, you have a complete transformation in how we think about time, how we think about space, and how we think about information, because you've uncoupled it from transportation. You no longer need the physical to have the idea. And Not quite the Reader's Digest version. Well, that's, I, know, I, think, I think we need that detail, because I think, I know for, what, for you, one of the fascinations of this is that this is a very large system. It is a very large, complex system. And thinking about this allows us to think about large, complex systems. Yeah, and part of the reason that we started pursuing this in for us was to think about what does it mean to imagine creating a system that is whole, whole of world. So let's remember you're not just connecting one end of Australia to the other end. It then connects to a set of submarine cables that connect Australia, specifically in Australia's cultural imagination, to London, but to a number of points in between. And so here you have a system that makes whole of worldness. It's a system that requires an enormous amount of tending for it to work. And it's a system that has multiple consequences beyond the telegraphic. It creates time, it creates maps of weather, it ends up creating entire other infrastructures and apparatus. And so we were really interested in, if you understood this system exquisitely, would it give you a set of tools for thinking about 21st century systems like the metaverse, like artificial intelligence, if you could think about what it took to make this system true, what would it tell us about what we were doing now? So as a kind of a lens into the present and the yeah. future. And, and that word lens is really a good one because a lot of the project is about seeing. Absolutely. And last um, October, I was, I, was, I was actually going to Australia for a bit, so I contacted Genevieve and I said, I'm going to be, be in your country for a while. And one day I got a kind of excited Zoom call from Genevieve and Andrew. And they said, okay, open your browser and go to Google Maps and put in Strangway Springs. And this is what I saw. I said, I think Genevieve, I think I've broken the internet. Uh, because when I go to Google Maps and put in Strangway Springs, this is what I saw. And in some ways, to see nothing in the parts of Australia, the parts of South Australia, the outback, where this telegraph went is, is not an unreasonable thing to do, to see nothing. No, and of course, at this point, what Chris didn't know was that Strangway Springs was one of those 
stations along the line. It's a repeater station. It's a place you need to put power into the system. It's a place full of human beings. It's a repeater station that is critical to the functioning of the line in a very tiny period of time, between 1872 and 1896. And we had become obsessed with this particular place, partly because during the pandemic, there weren't that many places you could go. And so Australia is a large country and Strangway Springs is one of those places. Uh, so. And getting to Strangway Springs is still in the 21st century an adventure. So you need to fly to Adelaide, then you start driving north. You drive up the Stewart Highway for about, yeah, 600 kilometers. And at some point you go left, no, go right. So you start going east. You go on a road called the Boarfield Road. Uh, that would be this road here. This is a 150 kilometer dirt road, no signs, no traffic. Usually gibber, but it's rained a lot in Australia recently. So it's very pretty at the moment. It's got daisies, which is not usually what you find on the Boarfield. And then you get to the unit out of track and you turn left and start heading north. And then another dirt road uh, full of all the usual things you would expect in Australia. Kangaroos, emus, dirt, more dirt. Flies, lots flies, of flies. Lots of flies. flies. Mosquitoes, more dirt, tourists. You keep going up this road. And at some point, if you're paying really close attention, on the far horizon after you've come through this gibber plain, so a plain just of rocks, there's a slight rise on the far horizon, which you see here, this little jumble of hills, and dead set in the middle of that, if you know what you're looking for, you see small white stone peaks that don't look like the rest of it. I assume you can all see those. That turns out to be, no, Nope, that's no, a mound. You're wrong. Nope, that's oh, a mound. Mound. Which way was it? In the middle. Oh, there. there. Right there. So there's, there's, you see those sort of buildings? Yeah, those. Um, and you see those. And you realise that what you're looking at is three things. You're looking at an artesian spring complex. So a place where the Great Artesian Basin, a water source that sits underneath a third of Australia, breaks through the ground and has been doing so for thousands of years and in thousands of years has created mounds out of the top of which flows water, and out of the top of which grows reeds and rushes, and at the top of every one of those mounds there are little tiny flowers, and in good seasons, which we have only been to it in, it's also full of zebra finches and crustaceans that only live on this place on the planet, uh, occasionally emus and very, very occasionally brolgers, which are large dancing birds that make their way this far south. So first you get the mound springs. Sitting on top of the mound springs, you discover that there is an old decaying ruin that is all that's left of the repeater station, which is that building right there. And then you come closer down that road and you start to look at all of that and you think, what does it mean to imagine a place that in 1872 was one of the most connected places in Australia that's now really hard to get to? And once you're here, oh, by the way, no telephony, so you're off. There's no mobile phone connectivity. Uh, the nearest phone connection from here is about 60 kilometers north. Yeah, hmm? no yeah. electricity either, pretty obviously, no running water, just a uh, ruin. Yeah, and, and in some ways the, the problem that, that this poses is one of being able to see technology. Mm -hmm. yeah, that, and particularly at a, I suppose at a moment where we are now of, of you know, sort of ubiquitous technology that is, a lot of it's invisible. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't see it, we don't see the infrastructure. Um, that one of the challenges that this poses is there's all this in the background here, but when you're here, what you see, you just see you yep. the ruins. So let's, let's, let's start looking at that question of, of, of what there is to see 
and how we can see it. So maybe, Andrew, you, what, what are we looking at here? Uh, this is from a drone uh, above the mound complex. And so I was trying to find my way, I guess, with the visual method to be able to share this place with us, given it takes you several days to get there. Uh, and there's no flies involved, so you'll be fine. Uh, and so I used a mobile phone, although my phone tends to go dark and I just photograph receipts usually when I'm traveling because I switch to other platforms. But Genevieve's a prolific phone taker and there's a whole lot of algorithms and panoramas and ways of seeing that the phone affords. Uh, I used a digital camera, which is you know the mainstay of sort of the press photography that gives me control over the light. Um, and it meant that I've now shot something like four terabytes of data and even I'm scared to go through the number of frames. And then I came across this, which I'll speak to in a minute, um, around film photography and then uh, being able to fly a drone here uh, really opened up the landscape. And I'm lucky because on the left of that frame is actually the Woomera prohibited weapons range. Uh, and I did have to check the maps to say, could I put the drone up? And we're just on the edge of it. So that's where they tested a whole lot of um, rockets and weaponry and it's still used for those purposes today. And so this was a way of opening up and showing the vastness because when you're there, the sky is impressive and oppressive. It is, it is phenomenal. And so being able to do this, and I realized showing that these mounds are really big and 3D and photography being a 2D forum, I only have one medium and that is light. And so I knew that for about 30 seconds, about 10 minutes after sunrise, everything went pink. And so it was a matter of being really familiar with the terrain and the imaging capacities of the drone and then knowing where to put it. So you put all that together. This is not my first photo. This is many, <laughs> many attempts in um, to be able to share it with you, to try and let you see and feel what it's like to be there. Because remember, so this is a mound complex that's about a kilometer square. Uh, every one of those, what looks like little rises is actually a mound. Those mounds are anywhere between a meter to four or five meters high. So there's a huge dimensionality to it. And this entire complex rises probably about 10 meters off the plane around it. So it's quite a, a different kind of landscape when you were there. And it's quite different than everything else around it. Were we to open up Google Earth and get Chris off the I broke Google Maps, <laughs> you can actually see this infrastructure on the satellite feed because it is very different to everything else around it. Where everything else around it is red, this is green. And part of why you end up with a repeater station here and indeed a cattle station, sheep station right before that is that when the first European explorers came into this country in the 1850s, they're looking for water. And the first descriptions of this from the earliest explorers in this area talk about finding water and knowing that this would be a place that was quote unquote suitable for pastoral purposes. And so the descriptions of it, the finding of water of it are also ways that this is an area that is being seen through a very particular lens. And that lens was about, can we put sheep here? <laughs> can we put humans here? And then can we put a repeater station here? Mm -hmm. But when you're looking for it, you know, it is a, an unexpected thing to find in that landscape. And, and there's an element here that we'll come back to as well. And it's, I think it has to do with the sheer scale of that mm -hmm. landscape as oh, well. And the kind of, I suppose, the response that you have to that. And we'll come back to that. Um, this is the repeater station again, closer up. It is. So now you're coming to the repeater station from the south. And one of the other things to think about this mound complex, which I think has to do with the choice of the location of this building, and Angela, you and I will recognize this in particular. The building is set on the far south end of the mound, looking back towards Adelaide. 
So it's set looking south back to the place where the largest populations were. It's looking back, quote unquote, towards home. And so when you sat on the edge of the door looking out, you're looking back towards where you've come from, not where you're heading to. So there's a bit of a way where it's being located in a very particular kind of sense. It's also to the, uh, really bad on this, the left-hand side of the frame, there's a thing that looks like a church. Uh, it isn't a church. It is an incredibly large water tank <laughs> designed to hold water because one of the things no one ever tells you about 19th century telegraphy is that it predates electricity. And so to make telegraphy work in the 19th century requires batteries. And the batteries are a non-inconsiderable exercise. So we are talking to run the Australian Telegraph line. It's about 120 volts, not much. But in order to do it, you are doing it using large wet cell batteries in glass jars that are about this big. Yeah, a bit like that joke. Yeah, and you need 300 of them. So 300 large glass jars full of copper sulfate and a plate that you are having to tend daily that glow bright blue, hiss ever so slightly and smell just a little bit because copper sulfate. And there's 300 of them at every one of these 10 repeater, 11 repeater stations in Australia. And in order to make them work well, you need clean water and the cleanest water you can get is rainwater. So we're having to find ways to hold water to power the line. And I think, you know, in 21st century terms, think about how much water we use to cool a server farm and you start to see where the parallels start to come of what it takes to make technology function. Is it just the obvious piece of, oh, we just need to power the line, but powering the line is a series of constant choices and negotiations. Uh, and, and what we're getting into here is, you know, how you start to see this in the landscape, that you know, for, for all the people, you know, not a lot perhaps, but all the people who drive that road, that Boarfield road, uh, you know, the number who would be aware of this in the landscape are, 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 are minimal, very, very few. And this, this, oh, this, this is, is the kind of trace yeah. in the landscape. This is an image so profoundly nerdy that when I found this and took it, there were only three people in the world I could share it with and two of them are sitting next to me. <laughs> <laughs> so at the repeater station, you have six people who work there. You have a station master whose job is to manage the technology in the station. You have a telegraphy assistant. Those two guys know Morse code. They work on two 12-hour shifts because the telegraph station is live all day, right? The line is constantly live, so 12-hour shift on and off. You have another four men at this point who are called linesmen and whose job it is to maintain the line in the 200-kilometer direction, so 100 in either direction. Maintaining the line meant clearing all the undergrowth. It meant replacing the line every time it broke. It meant replacing insulators when it broke. It meant doing a lot of maintenance and repairs. And so when we were last at this site, I decided to go walk the line like a linesman would have. And so I just picked a bearing and started walking. And I walked about 10 kilometers down the line with my walkie-talkie so Andrew didn't lose me too far. And as I was going down the line, I was looking for something in particular. I was looking for evidence of where the poles had been, 36,000 of them you imagine there are some left. And up until this moment in time, Andrew and I had seen an enormous number of the replacement poles because the first poles that get put for this line is a moment in time where building on the best practice of making a telegraph system, they chopped down trees. But in this part of the world, there are no trees to chop down. So they had to import trees from somewhere else, which means you now have a line that is relying on trees being cut in Western Australia moved by cart and boat to Adelaide, put on camel trains and bullock drays and brought north in order to substitute pieces. 
And then in the 1880s, when it becomes clear that trees are bad because <laughs> they catch on fire, they get eaten by bugs, they, you know, get hit by lightning, they become replaced by metal. And so we've been obsessed with metal poles for a really long time. And so that's what I was looking for as I was walking down, yeah, looking for these metal poles. But as I was walking where the line should have been, I came across, in that previous image, Chris, I came across a debris field of insulators, so the white ceramic there. And then in between the ceramic debris, there was this little tiny knob that's probably about this big. And I realized that what I was looking at was a stump of one of the original telegraph poles that was planted there in 1871. Uh, and when the line was replaced, they chopped it down to ground level basically, but left it there, because why are you gonna dig up a piece of burnt cypress that you've dug into the ground? And I realized that what I was looking at was a trace of the old line and that somewhere right near it was the metal pole, but here was part of the original infrastructure. And then usually what we find when we're looking at the original infrastructure is all these other forms of infrastructure that follow it. The metal pole, which is here looking remarkably like a very strange cruci crucified sort of, you know, artifact. And in this one, you can also start to see all the other forms of infrastructure that follow the telegraph line, because once the telegraph line has picked a line through this part of the country, the rail follows. So on the left-hand side of this image, you can see the railway line and you can see the sleepers, which also have to be imported from somewhere else, which resist decay and are still there at this point, 130 and 40 years later. And the metal poles, and to the right of that image, you can see a, a camel pad, uh, so a place where the camels walked and the cattle now walk. And so you see that the telegraph pole brings with it, and I will keep talking about camels, I promise I'll tell you why momentarily, but there is this kind of elaboration of other infrastructures that follow the first. Once you have a telegraph line, it requires other things, but it also makes possible other things. It opens up this part of the country and railway follows and other forms of infrastructure follow. And this is one of the great images I think that you've taken from this. Yeah, so this is, this is an, uh, Andrew took this shot, I, I regard this as one of our collaborations because I insisted he stopped the vehicle and he didn't want to. I was like, we are stopping, you are taking out the drone, you were putting it up because I know there's something here. It's just a petra road like any other petra road. I like, oh, I like that. All right. Put the drone up, mate. Um, because what was happening here, you read this image, we can read it right to left or left to right, but on the far right-hand side, you see a road. So that's a contemporary highway. Uh, highway, I write. That's probably putting too fine a point on it. It's a contemporary sealed road, it has a name. Immediately next to it, there's another line. And immediately next to that, there is a fence line. Between those two lines, there is a subterranean cable that carries fiber optics, which is our fiber optic network that rings all of Australia. If you keep reading this image going this way, you run across the railway line to the far left here. Next to the railway line, although you can barely see it, is the telegraph line. And slightly out of frame, there is the electrical line. Now, one of the things you need to know that's happening here is that the Telegraph line is put in by a collection of people who are seeking water because they need to have repeater stations and places to put water. The railway follows the telegraph line because once you've surveyed something, you're not going to go survey something else so you know it all kind of works. The fence line follows all of those things because it's become an excision zone, basically. It's been bought out by the state. The road follows all of that because once you've surveyed something, you're going to just continue in reasonable form. And once you've got all of that corridor, you're gonna stick the broadband network in the middle, right, the fiber optic cable. However, and this is the big problem, it turns out the very water that was excellent for telegraphy is terrible for the road, because now this road washes out every year, because it's on a floodplain. 
and it's right next to a place where the water was stored for animals and it was good for the telegraphy and so effectively you lose network connectivity in a whole part of Australia because of a set of choices that were made in 1870 and all the infrastructure lines up and whenever I look at this image once Andrew and I stop fighting about it what I wanted to ask myself and it's the question we've now asked several of the people we partner with is what are the choices we are making now that will ladder up to choices that we hadn't really thought about. So what are the affordances of technologies we are bolting onto systems that were themselves a response to a different prompt in a different moment in time? Which is to say, you know, as we are trenching to stick our fiber optic cable in, in a place that seems logical, quote unquote, because every other infrastructure is there, how do we peel back to the choices that were made in that first infrastructure and ask ourselves, are those the same decisions that we need to be solving for right now? This image is lovely that way because it sort of suggests choices of a collection of people solving a telegraphy problem in 1870 bedevil people in 2023. Yeah, and this is how we start to get to reconstructing, Absolutely. if you like, or to, or to, or to populating this landscape. Because if you sort of take it mm. the other way, right, so all we've been looking at at this point is all the bits that are left now. But if you wanted to ask yourself, what were those choices, the ones that people made in the 1870s that get you to the place here in the 21st century? Who was there? What were they doing? How would you reconstruct that? And that means all the kinds of places where Chris and my practice touch, which is about what's in archives, what's in the historical record, what's in journals, what's in oral histories, what's in stories people tell. And you end up back in diagrams and drawings written and taken by people who are on the line themselves. So this is a drawing, again, of Strangway Springs at that same repeater station taken by a linesman in the early 1870s. Two interesting things about this one, you can see the telegraph poles in it on either side of the repeater station, so you know that's what's going on. It also has this interesting Aboriginal community in the foreground, uh, much like Chris's cable being onboarded to land images, that particular light motif of Aboriginal people in the foreground of these images is really common and I'm sure it's partly meant to be this kind of contrast between the primitive quote-unquote and the technologically advanced quote-unquote. Now of course the thing about Stranglers is there actually were Aboriginal people living there. This is the traditional lands of the Arabana. They are resident in this place at this moment of time but that's not where they're living. <laughs> they're living on the back of the mounds in much larger families and not in huts like this. But there's an interesting notion of wanting to put them into the diagram as a way of saying they are here, but also getting them completely wrong. By the same token, that's from the South Australian archives, this next image, is taken at exactly the same time period and ought to be totally recognisable, right? It looks like the same image again. Wonderful features of this image include the following things. If you look at that large building in the middle, which is the repeater station before the water tank gets put in, and your eye tracks down the front of the building and then over to the right, there's a little tiny black dot at the bottom there. That's a puppy dog. Uh, when we blow this picture up and look at it at full sky scale, it's someone's dog resting in the sunshine, which may not mean much to any of you, but it means that we can tell you when this picture was taken because there is no way a black dog is lying in the sunshine in a, the Australian summer. That means it's a winter picture, uh, which means it's likely taken in the winter of 1873. Uh, there's also an inexplicable pile of thatch over to the far right-hand side of the frame. So there's a building and a building in the thatch pile. That thatch is not related to a building. That thatch turns out to have been taken off the building in the middle of the frame because they put a tin roof on so they could collect water, see batteries, and so this is an image, Andrew's best speculation is it's taken as a form of government auditing. 
we sent you money for a tin roof proof you put it on. And so a picture is taken to demonstrate that progress has been made. There are a series of these taken of all the repeater stations up and down the line. This one is in particularly good nick because it's a glass plated negative. Uh, historically and hysterically, in the South Australian Library archives, it's actually stored as two different images from two different dates. Uh, and Andrew did have a moment of realising they were the same picture taken at the same time. So it's sort of one of those moments of how you also put back the record together. This one is 10 years later. So at this point, the repeater station is increasingly elaborated. Uh, for me, the lovely thing about this image is that there are three chickens in it. Come on, Patrick, where are the chooks? Next to the black dog. Three chooks right in the middle of frame. Uh, why that's interesting is because it's actually how do you get chickens up there? That means they're being brought up there. This means this is on a whole supply chain. When this photo was taken in the late 1880s, the station master is a man named Andrew Hewish. He's leaning against one of the um, veranda posts in the middle of the frame. Right about the time this picture was taken, there was a visit from the Premier of South Australia uh, up and down this whole area because the railway's also just been put in up to this site. And the Premier writes in his visit to here that they visited the lonely place, loneliest place in Australia that day and that they had come on the train to this place and they'd taken a buggy over this jumble of hills and they've ended up at this repeater station and here they are. And the line is something to the effect of, we are in the loneliest, most remote place in Australia, but the men at this place know more about the world than we do. They know about the health of the German emperor and the movement of the stock exchanges because they can hear the messages as they pass through. And so there's this place where here are these people who are simultaneously seen as being deeply remote but hyper-connected. And so you start to have this discourse that's kind of circulating about what it means to both be on the edge of nowhere in the middle of somewhere all at the same time. Yeah, and that kind of sense of your literal physical place in the world, mm -hmm. you know, in the sense of being almost in kind of it's almost no place and yet being connected everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. And that kind of dominant trope continues all the way through this, this moment in time, right? That you are simultaneously in a place, but also in a network. Uh, and then there is this other delightful accounting of all of this. So you build these telegraph stations. They are in these far remote places. In order to support them, you need to be able to move goods and services to them. You need to be able to bring in nearly a ton of copper sulfate, glass jars, you need to bring in food, you're bringing in supplies. You are doing it in places where there are not yet road, the rail hasn't come. And for a 65, nearly 70 year period in Australia, the dominant way of moving goods and services in this part of South Australia, the Northern Territory, is by camel. And so an entrepreneurial South Australian landowner in the 1850s imports Australia's first camels. He creates a camel franchise and when he brings the first 100 camels to Australia, he realises that in order to extract maximum value from this camel asset, he's also going to need to bring people who are skilled camel handlers to Australia. So in addition to the 100 camels, he supports the migration of 31 men who come from a range of different places, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, a couple of other places in that region. In Australia, they become known as the Afghans or the Cameliers. And so in addition to camels, you have a working population, mostly of practicing Muslims, who come to Australia and run these camel trains. And we are talking by the 1870s and 1880s, tens of thousands of camels, and probably somewhere between 1,000 to 2,000 camelers of one stripe or another running these massive kind of enterprises. 
They are bringing all manner of goods and services. The average camel train that is supplying the repeater stations probably had 60 or 70 camels on it. So it's like a, we're talking a not insignificant thing. The records of that population, of what they imagined they were doing, how they were seen, are complicated. Some of those records exist, many of them don't. What does exist in the South Australian Library is this extraordinary and exquisite illustration, uh, likely done by one of the cameleers himself. Uh, one of the lovely features of this is it's a record of what people were seeing, right? And for me, the nicest feature of this, which probably may not be visible to all of you in the background, is the camels are drawn with loving, exquisite detail. Those are happy, pretty camels. The horse, really not particularly interesting. <laughs> because let's be really clear, who cares about horses if you're a camelier? And so the camels are beautiful, they are happy, they are decked out in goods from shops that actually existed in South Australia. So here's an illustration in some ways of a very other way of thinking about that. Well, what's in the center of the frame is the camels and their owner. What's on the peripheries? Yeah, women in skirts, some bloke on a pony who doesn't have a chin, um, and the railway in the background. But it's very clear what's foregrounded here and about a very different kind of way of imagining what these spaces might have looked like and a very different, well, in some ways, constructed imagination. And, and I mean, the other, I suppose, the other two things about this as well is that this allows us to start to think about Australian history differently because you have this this population of, of Muslims in Australia in the 1870s. Mm -hmm. um, they built mosques. They did. So uh, this whole area, some of the earliest mosques in Australia are here. You saw populations here where we would have had uh, competing imams. We would have had people speaking multiple other languages. We had multiple forms of constituted different sociality and polity happening. And this is not the only other sort of population that's in this period of time. So in addition to the cameleers who are creating transportation hubs, there is a network of Chinese market gardens that also operate in all of these places. So we have an entire population of Chinese immigrants who are also working in these communities. So we have a remarkable diversity of lived experience and backgrounds and for us, as we sort of started to think about what does it take to support a technical system, it's not just the technology, right? It's who are going to be the workers that also are supplying the food, the services, the backbone. All of that means that you have to unpack these multiple layers and multiple intersecting networks. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's something about the first gaze of saying it's just 3,000 miles of galvanized wire and 36,000 poles. Well, it's also six people per repeater station, plus goats, plus sheep, plus chickens, plus Chinese market gardens, plus camels, plus cameleers, plus railway, and it suddenly becomes an incredibly complicated enterprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a complex system. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When, when I was in Australia last, last, well, I keep saying autumn, but it was your spring. It was my spring. Uh, I, 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 I did a, a master class there because I've been thinking about this, this, this overland telegraph as well. And I started thinking of maps. There's pretty interesting maps of some of the first Europeans who went through these areas, um, many cases getting lost in the ways in which they mapped the area. And I started to get interested in alternative ways of mapping and particularly uh, some of the, um, the Aboriginal art, which is effectively a map. And I just randomly pulled this image off the internet as an example of a kind of piece of Aboriginal art that is also a map. And of course, Genevieve's in the back of the room and she suddenly pops up and says, oh yes, I, I know Damien and Yilpi. Um, so what are we looking at here with this piece of Aboriginal art? 
Well, and so part of the reason I know these artists is that this is also from the same region that the Telegraph is happening, right? So this is from the other side of the highway in uh, the AP Wildlands or the Aranta Pintajara and Yankarajara lands. And so one of the ways of thinking about these images is that they are post-colonial artifacts, right? People are making them for this moment in time, but they are full of ways of making sense of country that are profoundly both local and hugely important to the people who are making them. Choices of everything from colour to iconography to motifs and images in them tell you about everything from places where people gather. So one reading of this would be the set of images on the bottom left-hand side where you have the U-shapes are where people camp. You can see in this water, you can see in this flowers that are blooming, you can see a map of country and if you know these places well, you can tell what you're looking at, right? These are not one-to-one -one representations, but they are ways of talking about how a place is animated. They're frequently stories about ancestral figures mm -hmm. and about how those ancestral figures make sense of place and country. And so for us, when we started to think about the Overland Telegraph Line and particularly about Strangway Springs, one of the things we were very acutely oriented to was where that place was not just on a map created by Warburton and everyone else, but by what it meant to be in a place that was our abundant country. And so had we been giving this talk in Australia, we would have started by acknowledging where we were, which for us would have been all this work was done on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people who would pay our respects to elders past and present. In the instance of this work, the Strangways repeater station is on the lands of the Arabana people, and the Arabana people have been continuously occupying that country for at least yeah, you know, six to 10,000 years, and they have made meaning in that place for that entire duration, and they have persisted in that area through the arc of pastoralism, the repeater station to the present time. And one of the things we've started to see in South Australia, at least, is the collaborations between state government and local Aboriginal nations has lent to the uh, creation of this signage system where each piece of land is signaled as to whose country you're on and the iconography in each one of these tells you something about it. So in this case, Arabana is the name of the nation, but if you look at the sign itself, you see on the far side here, a representation of the mound springs, but the mound springs coming out of what appears to be a snake, where the snake is made up of emu, kangaroo and human footprints. And so what that's embodying is a series of important stories here. And one of the ways to talk about Strangways, if we go to the next, image would be to go back to Andrew's photo of the mounds at dawn and to tell you the way that Arabana talk about this. So Europeans talk about it as a jumble of springs, about a water source, about a place that messages passed through where you knew the health of the German emperor better than anyone else did. But the Arabana story here is a story that begins with two ancestral figures with uh, Kaguri and Yankangur, uh, who are these two ancestral figures. Um, the old man red belly black snake and the old man green snake and it's a story about these two ancestral figures and where they camp for the night and about laying down at the end of a long day and towards the end of the lives they've been living and of sitting there at, at night and i always sort of wonder about you know two ancestral figures meeting on the end of a long journey <laughs> you know are they sitting there in silence? Are they talking to one another? Are they just looking at the kind of fierce stars that are part of this place? But the place they camp, which we would call Strangway Springs, in Arabana is called Pankawuruna. And that word in Arabana translates into English as white ribs. 
And the way the site is made sense of is that the way the mound springs open up is like the ribs of a snake as it's desiccated in the sun. And so you think of it as being this place is given shape and form and meaning by a set of ancestral figures who walked this country, slept and lived there and gave it shape and purpose. And so for the Arabana, this place is an incredibly important part of a very large set of sites and places where meaning is made. And so while we may think about it in this project as being a repeater station, it's also a cultural heartland given form and shape by two ancestral figures who give it both its name and its form and its features. And, and for me, that was the sort of paradigm shift um, that suddenly there was a completely different sort of time frame. Um, and I, mean, I suppose for me, the concept that was most useful in thinking about this was the idea of deep time. You know, the, the, the phrase comes from the geologist John McPhee, um, where it, one, of the, one of his best descriptions of it is that of all of geological history, is the yard that was from the tip of the king's nose to his thumb, then human history is what you would take off the top of your thumbnail with one stroke of a file. And that sort of sense of, of, of these vast stretches of time. And I think you suddenly, you get that once you locate this landscape in its vastness. And you, I mean, the vastness is a visceral thing. You feel the vastness of it. But when you're also able to locate it in that other time scale, um, you suddenly have a sense of this technology existing in a different time. And I think where presentism is so much a feature of the ways in which we think about technologies, they're here now, uh, this suddenly shifts the paradigm. Absolutely. And so what Chris hasn't told you is when we called him excitedly and said, look, Strangway's on a map. No, you didn't break the internet. It was the invitation to say, and we want to take you there. Like, I, you know, we both care about telegraphy. I want to take you onto this piece of country and show you what it's like. Now, unfortunately, the vagaries of the Australian desert mean that it rained continuously and we didn't get to Strangway Springs. <laughs> uh, but we got close. And so in the middle of the night, we found ourselves on the edge of this part of the area in a place Andrew just alluded to called Woomera, which is an old military base that you can stay at. It's a bit kind of think Australian Gothic decay, if you can imagine that. Uh, but it means you're in the middle of a desert in a military base that looks like it's a set for a horror movie. Um, and if you're Chris, who's a perfectly pleasant human being, and you say to him at 10 o'clock at night, hey, Chris, get in the car. We're taking you somewhere. And we went out to the middle of the desert. <laughs> and we got out of the car and turned the lights off. And uh, I mean, I have to say, it was, it was one of those kind of, well, kind of life-changing moments because... This is what you see, and the longer you stay out there in the dark, the more stars you see, and you start seeing stars right down to the horizon, which, I mean, I had never seen before, and I've been in some pretty dark places. And you realize that if, if this is where you lived, if you, like a lot of Aboriginal peoples who have traditionally lived under the stars, you would have a completely different sense of this landscape and of its time scales. And for me, this was, this was a kind of almost a kind of immediate visceral experience of that deep time, of that sense of a deep time. And it was that juxtaposition with this complex technological system that we had been tracing, this overland telegraph, that suggested to me, well, maybe this provides us with a way about thinking technology differently. And that a lot of this project then is really about shifting 
perspectives. And it's good that that was Chris's response because we did have a shovel in the car as well and we had taken it somewhere <laughs> well past where anyone was. And so that his best response was that one of, you know, an epiphany rather than anxiety is probably helpful. Yeah. Just as we kind of, we have a couple of just other little pieces of this we just want to share with you. Um, Andrew has started looking at ways of shifting the time scale as well. So do you want to just take us sure. through these photographs? Sort of? well, I think you've seen the theme here is new ways to see and look and feel. And I want to say feeling. I mean, we, Chris just spoke beautifully there of that moment under the stars. And for me, photography is simply that. It's a, sen it's a way of sensing the world around me. So I want to feel something. Then there's a level of evaluation. My brain will go to what's the light doing? How do I capture that? Can it be captured? How would I do that? And then there's a layer of iteration in that, which allows me to then circulate that image. And then the same process I would hope happens to the people who get to interact with those images where they sense it, evaluate it, feel something, and it repeats. Uh, and so I came to this project with a bit of visual archaeology effect, reading every pixel in those images in that archive, and that's how we found the chickens. Is what are those black dots? What could they be? And then you're sense-checking that. So you're looking for what's revealed and also what's concealed. And in looking at that data set, I went, damn, these glass plate negatives are just gorgeous. Like the resolution in them was better than anything I could do with my fancy digital cameras. And so I started reminiscing on, I went to technical college back in the early 90s and we would do assignments on film like this, which is four by five inches. So it's, it's accessible. And I've realized that this camera technology from 1947 is a press camera photographer. Uh, mainstay of the industry at that time, just part of my ancestry. And I realized it's the halfway point between that camera being manufactured in today and that camera and that camera set. So it was a way of me playing in the space and this way of bringing an affordance where someone has made a decision what color the sky is and put a set of numbers in that and bake that into that phone. So when I see and feel something, the phone's not really replicating what I'm seeing and feeling because of decisions made elsewhere. And obviously, film is doing a similar constraint. But moving to this platform allowed me to sort of stand in the places where that archive had been and I could disentangle the physics and some of the chemistry and ask some questions around why did you stand here and photograph that and not this? And so this gave me a chance to sort of play in that space. And so that's what this, we can click through these, this series of images allowed me to do. So I started with the repeater station because that was our sort of locus of interest. And it was a matter of letting go. You've heard us speak at length around the mounds and how they make you feel. And so I'm trying to decenter the repeater station. And here we, hidden in that gray deliberately is a set of gateposts that first time we were there, we didn't really notice them. And then we had this iteration between being in place and being back in the archive and then going back to place and we could see new things. And so here we, I'd seen glimpses of these in some of the older photographs and there was a turnstile in between those gateposts at the railway station. And this is like middle of nowhere, uh, which wasn't somewhere. And then we saw them in the um, diagrams of the railway station. Um, so we knew they were there. And then a lot of things were of the buildings. And I thought, let's just reverse that. And this is the view that the telegraphers would have seen. So that rubble in the foreground was the wall uh, and there would have been a window and door there. And that's looking south, uh, back to Adelaide. And then as photographers do, we sort of look at everything from every angle. Uh, and that's how you take a good photo, people, is you take a lot of them, um, sense, evaluate, iterate. Um, and again, realising removing colour, which is a big thing out there, forced me to look and see light. And really that's what I'm doing here, is I'm trying to understand light, time of day, 
shadows and it just brought me closer to that place and so whether it was iterating between looking at the archive and coming back to site or knowing this time in the morning the shadows will fall there it just made me feel a lot closer to place in the archive and therefore enhance the research so it was again just a new way of seeing not just about the photos per se but a, an instrument to help me see and then here we have uh, one of the remaining poles that's the closest thing we have to sort of a monument to the, at a place called Unadatta and they call it angle pole where the line um, changes its compass direction effectively uh, and again just using horizon was a really fun way to sort of make some choices around do I want sky do I want foreground and the epiphany for me came in although I went looking for telegraphy and you've seen us you know get very excited about debris piles of porcelain I realized that no, it's actually water. And from a country like Australia, that's deeply important, as is in most places. Um, on the mound spring we have on the left is one called the Waterfall Spring, and it's still dripping water that's millions of years old today. The middle frame is some railway infrastructure where they had this incredible, I saw them as Empire Strikes Back infrastructures <laughs> of quickly getting water into a, into a very thirsty uh, steam train. And on the right, we have uh, a unique, uh, well which is circular in its design which is known as the Cavaliers well uh, and they pop up on the edges of town so the uh, white colonies would have a square tank and the Cavaliers would have a round tank and they'd, you could tell the separation of camels and horses don't mix and so it was a way of me playing with landscape and seeing those different interpretations. And then just the very last thing we want to share with you quickly was something that started to come together for us as we started looking through these um, archival images. And it was, how do, how do you picture, how do you imagine something like a telegraph, which is by its nature sort of almost invisible? And this is one of the ways, is a map like this. Absolutely, which is the map that starts to make it really clear that between 1860 and 1880, the entire world's oceans get full of telegraph, get full of submarine cables, and that those cables create, well, uh, delightfully they're called the red line uh, for the ones that were owned by the British Empire. So uh, the Eastern, Eastern Telegraphy Company owned about 46% of the world's submarine cables. The rest were owned by Siemens. Uh, and so you have where, you know, Eastern Telegraphy becomes cable and wireless, Siemens stays Siemens and you have this incredible kind of litigation of power under the ocean of who controls the access points. But what we also started to find was that there is what somebody from my background would call a visual trope, that there's a, there's a kind of almost a visual figure of speech that gets repeated all over the place. It's yeah. when in, in, in telegraphs for a period of 50, 60 years almost, that is, an image of making what is hidden visible. And it's this image which we started off with. This is the, a, a painting by a painter named Robert Dudley of the transatlantic cable coming ashore in Valencia in 1865. So this image of the cable coming ashore becoming, if you like, becoming visible as it comes out of the water, as it comes out of the deep. And what's remarkable about this image is that you get a slightly more primitive version of it. This is at the other end when the transatlantic cable is hauled ashore in Newfoundland um, at the same, this is actually the earlier cable, 1858 cable, but the same image. Here's a photograph in Port Darwin um, in um, 1872 as it, the cable comes ashore. And again, it's these series of boats and the people hauling the cable out of the water. 
Um, this is one that you found in the archive in uh, Port Kremlo. Um, this is the cable coming ashore in um, the Persian Gulf in Tfau. So this is the cable that's on its way to Australia. Same image. Here we are in Aden, cable coming ashore. Um, people in the water, camels on standby. Um, here is the cable finally arriving um, on the coast of Cornwall. This is the cable that ultimately connects with Australia. And if you go to Port Kumno today, you get the Lego version. And it seems to me that this, this image seems to resonate for a long, long time, and indeed in Lego, um, partly because it's an image of something that is invisible, a piece of infrastructure that changes the way people perceive time, that we perceive space, the, the way in which we inhabit the world, the way in which information is, is made accessible to us, and yet it is invisible. And that in some ways what this repeated image over time, I think, speaks to is almost a desire for a sort of invisibility. And I think that maybe the reason that this speaks to us today became apparent to me about nine months ago. Well, first of all, it's in this image. Yeah. Well, and, and for me, the tension between all of those paintings and photographs that are about making the invisible visible by making humans center of frame, single cable, are utterly complicated by this one, which is only visible if you know what you're looking at. And so every piece of the technology is submerged, not pulled out, or every piece of the technology is dehumanized in some ways and disembodied. There's a really interesting tension between the desire to have the human figures pulling the technology out of the deep effectively and making it connected versus the reality, which is that it's frequently deeply buried, but influencing choices nonetheless. And I think the importance of this to me was underlined just before I went to Australia, when uh, a friend of mine sent me this photograph, which is Old Head in County Mayo, just outside Lewisburg, on the 22nd of September last year, when the um, AEC2 cable came ashore, fiber optic cable that can give you 400 gigabytes a second of data. And instead of the whole village coming out to haul the cable ashore and make it visual, um, you've got one man and his digger, um, the cable's buried in the sand, and if you went for a day in the beach in Old Head, you wouldn't know that you were sitting under, sitting on top of this piece of infrastructure, that it's, it's, it's invisible. So the question of visibility, of the visibility of the technologies that have such profound influence on the way we live our lives, is uh, perhaps something that this going back to an old technology allows us to do. And I imagine for people in the room who either work inside large tech companies or spend their time around them, there's a series of images we would recognize as doing the same work now. So whether it's that image of the city with the glowing lights running across it like a ring, whether it's the human hand touching the robot hand, <laughs> there are a series of tropes we mobilize now in order to make the technology both visible and in some ways manageable that have a similar set of repeatability as those original telegraph images do. Listen, I think we'll leave it there. Um, thank you all for coming out on a, a Thursday evening when the weather's relatively decent. Um, <laughs> thank you very much to Genevieve and Andrew for being here with us. Um, I hope you, 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 you've, you've picked up some of their infectious um, passion for this particular uh, topic. I know I certainly have. Um, and. Um, We'll be back soon. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah.